Bonjour, my name is Anna Joubambret. I'm the director of the International Trade Law Division of the Office of Legal Affairs of the United Nations. I'm also the secretary of the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law, better known as UNCITRAL. I would like to invite you to accompany me on a journey that will take us from New York to Singapore to explore together the UNCITRAL framework on dispute resolution. In addition to a journey across continents, it's also a travel through time because I would like to begin our journey on the 10th of June of 1958 and take us to the 12th of September of 2020. Now fasten your seatbelts and let us begin in New York in 1958 with the Convention on the Recognition and Enforcement on Foreign Arbitral Award, also known as the New York Convention. This convention is the most successful instrument of the United Nations in the field of international economic law, with 167 states having ratified it to date, and with the last accession being the one by Malawi on 4 March 2021, shortly after Ethiopia and Sierra Leone ratified it a couple of months ago. It's also the cornerstone of the international legal framework on which international arbitration has built its reputation of an effective means to settle commercial disputes. It's the founding instrument for UNCITRAL itself and consequently a beacon of light for all of us who work at the service of international law and the business community. To understand why and how the New York Convention was developed over 60 years ago, it's important to consider the historical context and to go back to the beginning of the 20th century. At that time, there were only very few national arbitration laws in place, and arbitration as an alternative to settlement of commercial disputes by domestic courts was considered with reservation or suspicion. For the business community, however, the lack of an international framework on arbitration was considered as an impediment to the development of international trade and settlement of disputes arising from cross-border trade. The call for the establishment of an international framework on arbitration came from the International Chamber of Commerce, the ICC, which advocated in the 1920s for a convention on enforcement of arbitral awards across jurisdictions in order to ensure that disputes settled through arbitration would be recognized and enforced also in other jurisdictions. It was felt that this would really allow arbitration to take off and to become a credible means. The ICC brought this request to the United Nations to negotiate a convention to facilitate and ensure the recognition and enforcement of foreign arbitral awards. The diplomatic process that led to the adoption of the New York Convention took place through the United Nations Convention on International Commercial Arbitration, which worked on the preparation and adoption of the New York Convention from 20 May to 10 June 1958, the date on which the Convention opened for signature. It subsequently entered into force a year later on 7 June 1959. Now let me stop here for a little while to tell you that this United Nations Conference did more than just produce the New York Convention. It also set up UNCITRAL the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law. Indeed, in its final act, the conference in 1958 underscored the relevance of measures for increasing the effectiveness of arbitration and mentioned several topics that would need to be looked into. 
These included the collection and publication of information on existing arbitration laws and facilities, technical assistance in the development of arbitral legislation and institutions, and the preparation of model legislation on arbitration in order to ensure a harmonious development of the domestic frameworks supporting arbitration. These topics found their way into the legislative work program of ANCITRAL at its first session and constituted a roadmap for the future work of ANCITRAL. Now back to the New York Convention and to its 167 signatory states. With this convention, an arbitral award rendered in one state member of the convention will be recognized and can be enforced in any other state member of the convention, whatever the domestic legal system or level of development. You will agree with me that 167 covers pretty much the entire planet. We continue to work hard, though, in the Secretariat to encourage and support the few remaining countries that are not yet members to sign on or to ratify. When I started with ANCITRAL three years ago as the Secretary, our objective was to bring together 160 members for the 60th anniversary. It was clearly, we have clearly exceeded our expectations. And let me tell you why. The New York Convention was characterized by the UN General Assembly Resolution of 2007 as an instrument that strengthens respect for binding commitments, inspires confidence in the rule of law, and ensures fair treatment in resolution of disputes arising over contractual rights and obligations. Courts in the jurisdictions of state members of the Convention apply the provisions of the Convention and recognize awards rendered abroad and made following the application of foreign laws. And by doing so, they, they signal their strong commitment to the role of law and bring certainty to business operations, trade, and investment worldwide. It's not a surprise that membership in the New York Convention is among the criteria identified in the Ease of Doing Business ranking by the World Bank of States every year, the assessment of the business climate by the OECD, UNCTAD, or the World Economic Forum. Now, so far for policy implications. Now, to the content of the Convention itself. What is the Convention about? the recognition and enforcement of arbitration agreements in its Articles 1 and 2, and the recognition and enforcement of foreign arbitral awards in its Articles 1, 3 to 7. Arbitration is a consensual process, and it is therefore necessary that the parties agree to submit their dispute to arbitration. They do so through an arbitration agreement that can be standalone, can be a standalone agreement to arbitrate, or by way of an arbitration clause included in the contract or other agreement which binds the parties to a dispute. A judge or a court of a member state of the Convention presented with an arbitration agreement will have to recognize and enforce the effects of such arbitration agreement that makes it mandatory that the parties go to arbitration and prevent them from going to a domestic court instead. By concluding an arbitration agreement, the parties have waived their right to go to seek judicial remedies, and this is what the Convention guarantees. In order to do that, the judge or court will have to ascertain that the Convention applies, check the conditions set up in Article 2, and if these conditions are fulfilled, 
the judge shall refer the parties to arbitration and will not hear the dispute. For the recognition and enforcement of arbitral awards rendered in other member states of the Convention, the Convention also lists the condition that a judge has to ascertain before giving full legal effect to an arbitral award presented to him or her, similar to these of a court judgment. Notable, the res judicata effect, and that for an award rendered outside of the jurisdiction of this judge or court. The Convention also lists several grounds for refusal of recognition and enforcement. This is a short and exhaustive list of grounds that are found in Article 5.5. Five grounds of refusal on which a respondent may rely and two grounds that the court may refer to on its own motion. A party opposing recognition and enforcement can rely on and must prove one of the first five grounds. One, that there was no valid agreement to arbitrate. This is Article 5.1a. By reason of incapacity of the parties or invalidity of the arbitration agreement. Two, the respondent was not given proper notice or the respondent was unable to present his case. Article 5.1b. By reason of due process violations. Three, the award deals with a dispute not contemplated by or beyond the scope of the parties' arbitration agreement. This is Article 5.1c. 4. The composition of the arbitral tribunal or the arbitral procedure was not in accordance with the agreement of the parties or, failing such agreement, was not in accordance with the law of the country where the arbitration took place. This is Article 5.1d. And 5. The award has not yet become binding on the parties or has been set aside or suspended by a competent authority in the country in which, or under the laws of which, the award was made. And this is Article 5.1e. These are the only grounds on which the respondent can rely. Further, the court may, on its own motion, refuse the recognition and enforcement of the grounds mentioned below. However, in practice, the respondent invokes these grounds as well, and these are that the subject matter of arbitration was not arbitrable under the law of the country where enforcement is sought. This is Article 5.2a. And enforcement of the award would be contrary to the public policy of the country where enforcement is sought. This is Article 5.2b. If no ground for refusal or suspension of recognition and enforcement is established, the court shall enforce the award. Nothing more and nothing less. Neat and clear. And this is actually one of the reasons for the Convention's success. Nancy Tevenin, the General Counsel of the ICC USA, said that there is an elegance to the fact that this sparsely worded document has been one of the mightiest tools employed by the international business community to foster trade and investment worldwide. And indeed, it is a text of few articles a very clear objective to promote and reinforce re recourse to arbitration, a simple formula to eliminate the need for a double exequatur in the home and the host country before an award can actually be enforced and be given its full legal effects. And it's also so successful because it manages to strike a right balance between the application of domestic law for matters that do not need harmonization and international substantive law because the Convention is respectful of the sovereign rights of states 
and of their domestic legal system. Each state is free to determine its own procedures in the implementation and application of the procedure to recognize and enforce. Furthermore, the state's public policy, and not a vague international law concept or principle, is relevant to determine whether an award must be set aside or enforced. And maybe another source of success of the Convention is the built-in mechanism to allow for advancement of the legislative framework on recognition and enforcement of foreign arbitral awards through its Article 7 that sets a floor but leaves the door open to the application of more favorable laws, thereby paving the way for innovative and more liberal standards. Chief Justice Jeffrey Ma of Hong Kong SAR, in his keynote speech for the 60th anniversary of the New York Convention, stated rightly that not many international conventions are quite so forward-looking nor magnanimous, but what has happened in the last 60-plus years on and around the Convention. This is what we will see now. First, a lot of case law on its interpretation and application that we in the Secretariat are closely monitoring and analyzing. The new Ansitras Secretariat has prepared a guide on the interpretation and application of the Convention, reviewing all this jurisprudence and looking at the way the Convention is applied across numerous jurisdictions. And there, it is fair to say that despite its 60 years of existence, the Convention remains as fresh as when it was adopted and continues to serve its purpose of recognition and enforcement of agreements and arbitral awards in a consistent manner all over the world. And please let me insist on this not so surprising but quite satisfying outcome of our ongoing compilation, analysis and review of New York Convention application and interpretation across all the member countries. The Convention has been applied in a fairly consistent manner, showing that harmonization can be maintained over time and, conti and continues when the, when the objectives and the terms are simple and clear. To keep track of and contribute to this um, collection of case law and jurisprudence, I would encourage you to go to the dedicated website, newyorkconvention1958.org. It is on this rock that Ancitral built its comprehensive framework on international arbitration. Ancetral's model law on international commercial arbitration was pre prepared in 1985 with amendments adopted in 2006. Soft law or contractual instruments in, such as the Ancetral Arbitration Rules of 1976 revised in 2010 and in 2013. The Ancetral Rules on Transparency in Treaty-Based Investor-State Arbitration that became effective in April 2014 and a number of explanatory texts, for example, the Ancitral Notes on organi Organizing Arbitral Proceedings of 2016, or Recommendation to Assist Arbitration Institutions or Other Interested Bodies with regard to arbitration under the Ancitral Arbitration Rules. Now, let us travel east and land in Singapore. Interestingly, the process for establishing a comprehensive framework on international mediation has been completely different. It has started bottom-up, if I can say, 
with establishing the set of rules and a model law to culminate into an international convention. And let's see how this has taken place. As early as 1980, ANCITRAL has issued a comprehensive set of procedural rules upon which parties may agree for the conduct of what was called conciliation proceedings arising out of their commercial relationship. The rules cover all aspects of a conciliation process, provide model clauses, address issues of confidentiality, admissibility of evidence, and limits to undertaking judicial or arbitral proceedings while a conciliation is in progress. These rules are now being revised and updated and have been adopted by the 54th session of the ANCITRAL Commission in July 2021 as the ANCITRAL mediation rules. You may wish to note here that in ANCITRAL we did not make a difference between conciliation and mediation in the early 80s when we began working in this area. The terms were considered interchangeable. And this is why the update of the Model Law on International Commercial Conciliation of 2002 that was done in 2018 changed also the title of the Model Law into Model Law on International Commercial Mediation. Like for international arbitration, the Model Law is designed to assist states in reforming and modernizing the domestic legal framework on mediation in a uniform and harmonized way, which in turn gives greater confidence to the business community that the way they carry out mediation does not vary substantially between jurisdiction. It gives them predictability and certainty in its use. Now, similarly to international commercial arbitration frameworks of ANCITRAL, the Secretariat also has also prepared notes on conducting a mediation procedure and a guide to enactment of the law on international commercial mediation. But it's only in 2015 that a member state of ANCITRAL proposed to the Commission to start working on a multilateral convention on the enforcement of mediated settlements. The reasons for proposing it were that there was a development in the use of mediation in many regions, but that one obstacles to the one obstacle, sorry, to the greater use of conciliation was that settlement agreements reached through conciliation would seem to be more difficult to enforce than arbitral awards if a party fails to comply. Enforcement under contract law can be burdensome and lacks predictability and certainty. Practitioners have further put forward the view that the attractiveness of mediation may be increased if a settlement reached from a conciliation or a mediation would enjoy a regime of expedited enforcement or could be treated for purposes of enforcement as or similarly to an arbitral award. So here again, the political push came from the business community and the practitioners that saw a potential to strengthen mediation as a credible and effective means to settle commercial disputes. The Commission entrusted its working group too with the mandate to work on an instrument and nearly three years later, in 2018, the working group submitted to the Commission for its adoption not one but two instruments to enforce settlement agreements resulting from mediation and updating of the model law on international commercial conciliation and an international convention. The Singapore Convention on International Settlement Agreements resulting from mediation was born. And what a star! And please allow me to give you a 
quick snapshot of this convention of its texts that is held in uh, the treaty section and that is being presented by my colleague David Nanopoulos, the head of the treaty section. It was adopted by the Ancetral Commission in July of 2018. It was subsequently adopted by the General Assembly in December of 2018 and it opened for signature in Singapore on 7 August 2019 and at the time it opened for signature 43 countries joined it and in the course of the following year six states ratified it. This means that it came into force merely a year after its opening for signature on the 12th of September 2020. To date, 53 states have signed the convention. And now let me build the bridge back to New York. The convention was adopted by the General Assembly in December 2018 with the aim of providing states and regional economic integration organizations with a cross-border framework for the enforcement of settlement agreements resulting from mediation and for allowing a party to invoke a settlement agreement. By becoming a party to the convention, a state or regional economic integration organization, a party, consents to apply the convention to international settlement agreements resulting from mediation. That is the Article 1 of the convention. The convention then provides for parties' obligations regarding both enforcement of settlement agreements covered by the convention and the right for a disputing party to invoke a settlement agreement. If you remember what I said earlier about the New York Convention and its two objectives, to protect an agreement to arbitrate and to enforce an award, you can draw a parallel here and see that the Singapore Convention is about protecting a settlement agreement and enforcing it. Each party may determine the procedural mechanisms that may be followed where the Convention does not prescribe any requirement. That's what Article 3 of the Convention says. Noteworthy are the exclusions from the scope of the Convention, again back to Article 1, as it does not apply to settlement agreements concluded to resolve a dispute arising from transactions engaged in or by a consumer for personal, family or household purposes or relating to family, inheritance or employment law. A contrario, however, the scope of commercial disputes is large. It can include investment disputes, for example, settlement agreements that are enforceable as a judgment or as an arbitral award are also excluded from the scope of the Convention, for obvious reasons. The purpose of this last exclusion is to avoid possible overlap with existing and future conventions, namely the New York Convention, the Convention on Choice of Court Agreement of 2005, and the Judgments Convention of the Hague Conference on Private International Law. The formalities for relying on a settlement agreement under the Convention are simple. The disputing parties shall supply to the competent authority the settlement agreement signed by the parties and evidence that the settlement agreement results from mediation. The competent authority may require any necessary document in order to verify that the requirements of the Convention are complied with, and that's what Article 4 says. Following an approach similar to that of the New York Convention, the Convention then provides an exhaustive list of grounds under which a court may refuse to grant relief, and that is Article 5 of the Convention. 
The grounds can be grouped into three main categories as follows. One, in relation to the parties, their incapacity. Two, in relation to the settlement agreement, its invalidity, or the fact that the settlement agreement is not finding, not binding, or has been subsequently modified. The fact that the obligations in the settlement agreement have been performed or are not clear and comprehensible or that granting relief would be contrary to the terms of the settlement agreement. And then three, in relation to the mediation procedure, due process issues regarding the procedure or the independence and impartiality of the mediator. The Convention defines two additional grounds upon which a, co a court may, on its own motion, and if you recall, it's the same as with the New York Convention, refuse to grant relief. Those grounds relate to the fact that a dispute would not be capable of settlement by mediation or would be contrary to public policy. The Convention seeks to encourage granting relief under the Convention in the greatest number of cases possible. This purpose is achieved by allowing for the continued application of law or treaties of the countries of the country where the settlement agreement is sought to be relied upon that offer a regime more favorable than that of the Convention, Article 7 of the Convention. So it also plays this role of a floor, like in the New York Convention, above which more favorable rules can be built over time. A party to the Convention has the flexibility to formulate reservations, thereby excluding from the application of the Convention settlement agreements to which it is a party, or to which any governmental agency or any person acting on behalf of the governmental agency is a party, to the extent specified in the Declaration. A party may also declare that it shall apply the Convention only to the extent that the parties to the Settlement Agreement have agreed to the application of the Convention. By defining specific timing for formulation and withdrawal of reservations, the Convention provides the necessary level of flexibility and that is Article 8 of the Convention. The Convention and any reservation thereto may apply prospectively, that is, to settlement agreements concluded after the entry into force of the Convention for the party concerned. That is what Article 9 of the Convention says. So what we can expect now is that the Convention plays its full role in the future, that it establishes a harmonized legal framework for a fair and efficient settlement of disputes through mediation. And as a result, UNCITRAL has made available in the span of 50 years and across two continents, two comprehensive and mutually compatible frameworks, one on international arbitration and one on international mediation, with the same approach. Rules for the party, a model law for the state, and binding, a binding international convention to create certainty and stability.